evening and welcome to this first debate of term. It's my pleasure to join you as the Union President for Lent 2024. The first debate of term is this House believes Labour has betrayed the working class, which is a particularly salient debate given the upcoming general election. Before we kickstart the debate, I wanted to outline a few preliminary rules for those new to this chamber. The way it will work is that there'll be a paper speaker, one from proposition, one from opposition, then a round of floor speeches from the audience from one to two minutes, then our second proposition and opposition speaker, followed by a second round of floor speeches, and finally, the third and final proposition and opposition speakers. It's your right as members to challenge our speakers with a point of information if you think you have something salient, interesting or critical to add to the discourse of this debate. But it's equally as paper speakers, your right to decline the points of information and carry on with your speech at your discretion. So, without further ado, let's welcome our first speaker of the evening, Ishmael Benin. Ishmael is a first-year student of HSBS from Christ's. Ishmael, you had the ears of the house. I am working class. My family of six have been living under £25,000 per year for as long as I can remember. As someone who is working class, I feel betrayed and appalled by how far detached Labour have become from what it intended to be, which is to be a party which represents the constantly marginalised working class. Margaret Thatcher was prophetic to say that her greatest achievement was New Labour and Tony Blair, as the party have been pushed to be more and more centrist and concerned with profit, which can be seen in Blair's reluctance to renationalise what Thatcher privatised. Even on social issues, Labour have managed to betray us by criminalising the working class via the introduction of discriminatory anti-social behavioural orders. Socialist Jock Young put it best when he said that ASBOs were merely tougher on crime and not tougher on the causes of crime, which should be Labour's priority. ASBOs the flexibility and vagueness of ASBOs only saw an increase in oppressive and militaristic policing in the most deprived communities. Unfortunately, I see this echoed when I look at Labour's five-point plan, which involves solving crime by increasing the number of police officers. To proudly champion a pledge to get 13,000 more police on our streets reveals how far detached Labour have become, as again they have fallen victim to punitive populism. What you may see as a safer Britain, I see more working class youths being harassed. I see deprived neighbourhoods being swamped with police actively looking for trouble. To be tough on crime is to be tough on the causes of crime, which Labour are failing to acknowledge. Even policies intended to help us, new Labour failed. Their lack of effort to help people claim their new safety net programmes is why only 57% of those eligible for child tax credit claimed it. Do you want to know who was a part of that ignored 43%? My parents. Parents who were promised that they would get a better standard of living for themselves and their children. One particular introduction by New Labour which perpetuates social inequality are student loans. 
Student loans are a massive betrayal, as it is a barrier to the debt-averse working class from entering higher education. The repayment structure of student loans only deters the working class from trying to achieve better qualifications due to the fear of debt plaguing a large part of their lives, which many of us are sadly all too familiar with. Tuition fees help explain why lower social class groups represent merely 28% of those who undertake undergraduate study. The Labour Party now is no different, as even with the staggering increase of tuition fees to over £9,000 per year, Keir Starmer has scrapped his pledge to abolish them. What I can credit to New Labour was its surge of safety net programmes such as Sure Start, Job Centre Plus and more generous benefits. Keir Starmer refuses to reciprocate this, evident in another failed promise of scrapping universal credit to replace it with a more adequate system. Well, why is universal credit inadequate? My family are on universal credit. And even with both, both parents working, it just isn't enough. Not enough to pay for shopping, not enough to pay for rent, not enough to pay for petrol. And I know it isn't enough for the more than 20% of the people in the UK who are living under the poverty line. My point is, Labour have not offered an alternative to this. What the working class wants is a better standard of living where we don't struggle to afford the bare necessities. A solution to that is better welfare provisions, which is not on Labour's agenda. I should mention how in spite of 63% of Brits believing that taxes on the top earners are too low, the Shadow Chancellor has remained adamant in her position to not raise taxes for the riches. This refusal to attempt to redistribute wealth goes against the very core principles of the Labour Party. In order to slash NHS waiting times or aid in low-cost housing, it requires heavy investment. Yet, instead of simply planning to issue huge windfall taxes, the Labour government paradoxically wants to lower taxes. The Shadow Chancellor defends this by claiming she didn't come into politics to raise taxes on the working people. That's a fair stance. Then don't. Raise it on the tycoons and mega corporations. All I see is a sorry excuse to promote trickle-down economics which have been so enthusiastically championed by the likes of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. A Labour Party which does not challenge the interests of the ruling elites makes them no different to the Conservatives. The reluctance to tax the richest is why the party need to emphasise that they have to show fiscal discipline. But what does fiscal discipline look like? It looks like egregious student loan prices will persist. It looks like the two-child benefit cap will persist. The fact that Labour decides to maintain an explicit poverty-pushing policy is outrageous. Again, the excuse is to prevent reckless spending and to promote fiscal discipline. Well, I apologise. I didn't think that providing heating, clothing and food for children was considered reckless spending. In 2022, my household, alongside three million others in England, were in fuel, were in fuel poverty, which is where you spend over 10% of your income on energy bills. Whilst these households were coping through the harsh winter, Shell profited £32 billion that year. So you'd think the Labour government would want to combat this gross exploitation of necessities. Unsurprisingly, they have rejected any motion to nationalise yet another critical infrastructure. Even though two-thirds of potential want energy nationalised, Labour have shown time and time again they do not listen to their needs, to the needs of their electorate, who are mainly comprised of the working class. What happened to the Labour who so effortlessly nationalised industries like coal, rail and public utilities? 
But why would Labour make such necessary sweeping reforms when they are receiving such generous donations from rich benefactors and companies? In 2023 alone, Labour took £12 million in donations. The policies which Labour have scrapped may have been overwhelmingly popular amongst voters, but it seems they did not bode well with its potential donors. But what about the workers, the people who are the backbone of this country? You know, the nurses, the railway workers, the teachers. For someone who raves on and on about how we need to instill workers with a sense of dignity, Starmer has no plans to give them a much-needed pay rise. Starmer so desperately and pitifully attempts to flirt with workers while simultaneously clinging to his parochial centrism. If you want to be for the workers, give them what they want. Give them the pay rise they have been constantly striking for. Look at the streets and listen to the demands of the teachers, the nurses, the railway workers. If you are on the workers' side, show it. Finally, I would be in remiss if I didn't talk about Labour's treatment of Mayor Driscoll, who has been blocked for standing as a Labour candidate. What's the excuse? Apparently, it has to do with winning elections. But to quote the Socialist Appeal, isn't preventing a proven democratically elected candidate from running not extremely counterproductive? I chalk this up to an attempt to purge the party of any left-leaning politicians who want to prioritise the working class. It is a clear and shameless attempt by Starmer to wipe away the leftist identity of Labour. I say this because I feel like I represent a large part of the working class who feel like they lack a party to turn to. Even if Labour managed to secure a victory over the Conservatives, I will remain disheartened as I see the party as merely a lesser of two evils. I am working class and I speak for many of us when I say the Labour Party have betrayed us. Thank you very much. that speech and it's particularly brilliant to see first years auditioning to speak in our chamber and speak so well. To the first opposition speaker we have Lord Griffiths of Burryport. Lord Griffiths has spent over 20 years on the Lord's benches, beforehand served as a broadcaster, a writer, was in Haiti for 10 years, an academic and a leading figure in the Methodist Church. Lord Griffiths of Burryport you have the ears of the house. Mr. President and uh, friends, I hope we may consider ourselves to be friends. Following a, a, a passionate speech like that uh, is not easy for an old fogey like me, uh, who has lived a long life uh, worked through quite a lot of problems, tried to make sense of what he can, and has had time to reflect on it. Gosh, if the speech that Ismail has made uh, suggests that he stands outside the Labour Party, I shall be recruiting him as soon as this debate ends. Because if the Labour Party needs anything, it needs that passion, it needs that commitment, and it needs that energy. So thank you so much for making that speech. Of course, you won't expect me to agree with all of it. But politics is the art of the possible. That's been the truism that has made most sense to me over the years. Oh, I know what I'd like a political party to do, to achieve, changes it might make. I could write them out for you. 
But I also know that the constraints of actually wielding power, when you not only have your, man, your, your, your manifesto commitments to fulfill, but also the stuff that life throws at you, nationally and internationally, and that makes things very often much more complicated. From my own South Wales, this very day, uh, 3,000 workers will be made redundant at the Port Albert Steelworks. I don't know what will happen to Port Albert once that happens. It's almost the last surviving township in Britain, really, that's a kind of one industry town. There were lots more before Mrs. Thatcher took her scythe to it. Is somebody asking? Um, so yes, please. Um, the reason these steel and mill loads was because um, in 2018, following the US and the EU's 25% tariff on steel, the UK followed and has put the safeguard measures for reasons of free trade versus. Um, yeah. Well, thank you for that intervention, and, and I'm not disputing your figures, or even the inevitability of the results. I'm talking about the people of Port Talbot, who from the end of this month will have no work. That's what I'm talking about. There may be reasons. There always are reasons. That's what I'm saying. Politics is about dealing with stuff that the world throws at you. And this is something that's being thrown at the town that has produced Anthony Hopkins and Richard Burton and Michael Sheen, for goodness sake, it's a town of creativity, it's a wonderful place. Aberavon, Margam, Port Talbot. And they will hear what you said on a bit of paper. They may see the same conclusions as you, but they will still say, where are we now going to find our work? That's what I'm interested in. And so um, I just wanted to congratulate a working class young man, um, because the one thing but I can tell this audience is that I too am from the working class. Um, I may be Lord Griffiths now, but my life began uh, inauspiciously in South Wales um, when my parents divorced. My mother was given one week to quit what was called her husband's house with two small children, and I was raised in one room in uh, a, a lean-to in a brickyard. We scavenged on the tips. We begged at the crossroads. We gathered winter fuel, my brother and I, from a very early age. And I was politicized from way back then. I wanted to fight a world where people didn't have to do that anymore, where it was considered normal and natural to have somewhere decent to live in, uh, enough money to get by on. I shall never forget the tin pot little official coming to interview my mother to see if she was justified in not going to work. She'd suffered an industrial accident in the tin plate factory where she carried huge sheets of steel from one part of a, an annealing process to another, and it broke her body. She never ever regained her full strength again. And this tin pot man in a suit and with a briefcase. Some of you may turn out to be one of those petty officials. Never humiliate the people you, you find in those positions. Always treat them as decent human beings. My mother was a fantastic woman. Left school at 14, her linguistic skills, her artistic skills, her capacity to explain herself and to analyze an argument were patent. But she lived on a knife edge all the life until she died. My brother and I somehow 
survived. I passed the 11 plus, my brother didn't. My brother went to work in factories, became a shop steward, went through the GMB, the General Municipal and Boiler Workers Union, until he became an area organizer. Was ultimately offered a place at Oxford, at Ruskin College. He's a clever boy, but he failed the 11 plus. And I wanted to be with a party that saw to it that everybody had an equal chance. And I'm glad that it was the Labour administration who brought comprehensive education into being. And I know its faults and its limitations. I've been a school governor for over 40 years. I know about, the, but it's still the model that we must find a way of making work. So the clever and the not so clever, the well-connected and the not so well-connected, that they have an equal opportunity. I had mine by passing the 11 plus. When I didn't know I'd sat it. There was no culture in my background. I belonged to a gang. I was out with the lads beating up the people of the suburbs or the furnace fields or whatever it was. And, and so I just bring to this debate um, a sense of how my political angle of view um, was formed. I did not want a world where people had to suffer like my mother suffered. I did not want a world where people didn't have a roof over their heads. I did not want a world where people couldn't feed their children. And I've worked my entire life in order to address those objectives. My entire life. When uh, I'm in this place for the very first time, I'm scared to bits if you want to know. When I left the grammar school, my headmaster said to me, that I was clever enough to go to Oxford and Cambridge, but he didn't think I would be able to cope socially. And so I didn't come. I went to Cardiff. I did a degree in medieval English. I went to teach it in the University of Wales. I was clever, but I didn't come here because I wasn't able to cope socially. Now, I know Oxford and Cambridge isn't the Oxford and Cambridge of my day. I'm delighted about that, but there's tons more to do. Do you know that 83% of Keir Starmer's cabinet were educated in comprehensive state schools? 60% of Rishi Sunak's cabinet educated in fee-paying schools. That says it all for me. I want a world in which everybody has an equal opportunity. And here I am. I was three years in Cambridge, ultimately, to do my theology degree at Fitzwilliam. Never set a foot in here because I was afraid to in case I couldn't cope socially. Never came. But my classmate did, Michael Howard, and he became the president of the union. He was clever enough, and his family had money. He said, prison works. When I became the president of the Methodist Conference, there were 43,000 people in our prisons. I visited 15 prisons during my year of office. Prison didn't work. It definitely didn't work. By the time the 1990s had finished, there were 75,000 people in prisons, and now it's even more than that. I want a just world where creative ways of dealing with crime, the production of a society that doesn't automatically reduce people, one minute remaining, is that, am I allowed to ignore that, like he said? <laughs> right, well, well. <laughs> I could go on. Um, I just want to say that um, 
after that, I had 10 years. After 10 years in higher education, a teacher, a research student, um, uh, uh, an affiliated student here at Cambridge, and ultimately a PhD, I went to Haiti, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And I can tell you that whatever battles we have to face here, there are battles on the global scale that you can't even imagine by sitting here. I spent 10 years, I speak their languages, I learned how to be a whole person again because peasant, peasant people in Haiti taught me their language, their culture, they welcomed me as a friend. Now, I want a world where that happens. The only political party I can see that I must put my trust in for all its faults that will help us take the tentative steps in that direction is the Labour Party, and I do not believe that it has betrayed the working class. It has given me my chances through the welfare state, through Harold Wilson's government, through new labour. I could talk about all of those. No, I'm not answering because I'm out of time. I'm already, <laughs> I'm already trespassing. But um, I hope I've made my point. Lovely to see you. Thank you for putting up with my feelings of intimidation. And I hope you'll see sense as the arguments are rolled out. So, now we're going to move on to our second round of paper speakers. So, we're delighted to welcome Mayor Jamie Driscoll. Mayor Jamie Driscoll is the Mayor of North Tyne, who declared a climate emergency upon assuming office, and who was deselected as the Labour Party candidate and left the Labour, um, left the Labour Party afterwards. He's a champion of the left within the Labour Party and is standing again as mayor as a candidate to the left. We're delighted to welcome Mayor Driscoll. Thank you. In Dante's Inferno, there are nine layers of hell. <laughs> the first for those who were not baptised. The second, for those who committed the sins of lust. Third, gluttony. Fourth, avarice. Fifth, anger. Sixth, blasphemy. Seventh, violence. Eighth, deceivers and liars. The ninth and final circle of hell is reserved for traitors. After making his way past Cain, who slew his brother, Abel, after passing Brutus, who stabbed his friend and mentor, Julius Caesar, Dante describes Judas Iscariot, frozen in ice, his head gnawed in the jaws of Satan, the flesh from his back scourged by Satan's talons for all eternity. And Boris Johnson is going to have to divide his time between many layers of hell. Now, for the record, I accepted this debate when the motion was Labour has failed the working class. There are many capable and honourable people in the Labour Party. I do not think the Labour Party is responsible for all the ills affecting Britain today. Rising debt, crumbling public services, seven million people waiting for NHS treatment, a mental health crisis, a suicide crisis, knife crime out of control, public transport failing, Doctors, teachers, nurses, postal workers, all on strike. Three million people in destitution in this country. Not poverty, destitution. 
including a million children who either can't afford enough to eat or to turn on the lights, all caused by austerity imposed by conservative and coalition politicians. But the clue is in the name. It's the Labour Party, and it's their duty to fix it. In 1901, a railwayman at Taff Vale was victimised for asking for a pay rise. The amalgamated society of railway servants went on strike, won their dispute, and the company agreed to collective bargaining. But the company took the union to court and won damages equivalent of £6 million in today's money, and it made strike action illegal. In 1906, an alliance of Liberals and MPs sponsored by the new Labour Representation Committee introduced the Trade Disputes Act, which changed the law. And one of the parliamentary speeches said in that debate, the, act, the purpose of the Act was to place the two rival powers of capital and labour on inequality so that the fight between them, so far as the fight is necessary, should at least be a fair one. That was the creation of the Labour Party. It's job to advance the interests of working people. And my definition of working class is anyone who works for a living. Hospital cleaner or consultant radiologist, taxi driver or airline pilot. The old division between blue collar and white collar has long gone. There's scarcely a job today that doesn't involve data entry into a computer. It's not whether you have a degree or whether you prefer football to opera. It's whether your income comes from the work you do or from the property you own. My politics are simple. I believe Britain should be run in the interests of the people who do the work, not the billionaires who own our utilities and funnel the profits through overseas tax havens, while working people face paying more and more tax. And Labour did put working people first. In 1945, Labour ended the debilitating terror of ill health when it created the NHS ended the stalking fear of unemployment and old age when it created the welfare state, wiped out slum housing with a mass council house building programme. And it did all of that with a bankrupt, bombed out and exhausted country. It set the standard for the post-war settlement that benefited Lord Griffith. Life chances and life expectancy rose. Social democracy was established as the norm in Britain that social contract that if you worked hard at school, you'd get a good job and you'd be better off than your parents. And that social contract has been broken. Before Thatcher, every citizen owned the water and energy and transport and telecoms. Everybody had decent workplace pensions, including big private employers. 7% of adults owned shares. Now, 30 years on, post Thatcher, 8% of adults own shares and we get ripped off by energy companies, sewage in our rivers, and pensions degraded year by year. If you're young and not living with your parents, you're probably up to your eyeballs in debt, paying through the nose to live in a shoebox. Food, bank, Britain. So yes, let's put the blame on Thatcherism, selling our future to the highest bidder. So when a young, fresh Tony Blair strode into Downing Street, to the tune of things can only get better, there was a golden opportunity to put working people first. Instead, we got PFI, crippling debt on public services while hedge funds made out like bandits, privatised the profits and nationalised the debt. Labour ended free university education. First, they introduced tuition fees, then tripled them before the condemned coalition tripled them again. Labour accelerated the privatisation of the NHS with the internal market. 
saw ever more outsourcing in local authorities. In short, continuity Thatcherism. It rode a financial bubble of unsustainable rising house prices, but did little to change the balance of wealth and power in favour of working people. In fact, in fact, the wealth gap widened, and the, when the bubble burst, austerity bit hard. Labour became a party, not of Labour, but a party of capital. Ever more enamoured of American politics, it joined the US in an illegal war, destabilising the Middle East. Now, Keir Starmer, a former human rights lawyer, refuses to call a war crime a war crime. He's adopted the Conservative two-child benefit cap. He'll keep our utilities owned by overseas wealth extractors. Wants to introduce more private provision in the NHS. He's broken every one of the 10 pledges he was elected on. Our councils are on the verge of bankruptcy. Neither Labour nor the Conservatives intend to fund them. They're both hypnotised by austerity. But take heart. Sakir has promised to make teachers check whether schoolchildren have brushed their teeth. Perhaps worse, it's excused by the need to win power. Labour has been in power nationally for 33 of the last 119 years. It has a golden opportunity to change the electoral system to prevent minority conservative rule. But it won't take it. Now, I predict that Labour will win this next election comfortably. The Tories have fallen apart. Boris Johnson appalled everybody with his dishonesty. Liz Truss destroyed their pretense at economic credibility, and Rishi Sunak presides over a not-so-civil war. But what then? Continuity Thatcherism will fail. There's nothing left to sell. No more capacity to pile on debt. No bubble to ride. Working people will rebel. Labour councils will rebel. And Keir Starmer will be ousted. And this is where the Labour Party is wholly different from the Conservative Party. Labour MPs and Labour members balk at the two-child benefit cap, at banning MPs from picket lines, at taking donations from American private healthcare firms and then proposing more NHS privatisation. With any luck, we'll see someone like Andy Burnham in charge. Until then, I say fight in other ways, through community groups, through renters' groups fighting illegal evictions, climate action groups defending our parks and our beaches, trade unions fighting poverty pay, Mick Lynch and Sharon Graham are the real leaders of the opposition today. Or you can vote for independents like me to hold power in our towns and our cities and our regions. Or Zach. You are not powerless. Because with integrity and imagination, a better world is possible. I left school at 16, was an engineer. I've run my own business. I know market failures are better dealt with by social democracy than by unregulated free markets. In just four years as mayor, I've created over 5,000 well-paid private sector jobs backed by our Good Work Pledge. 2,000 homes on brownfield land, including social and council homes with solar panels and air source heat pumps. I've boosted our green industries. Our offshore wind sector is thriving. We're running child poverty prevention programmes in 100 schools. I've negotiated a £6.1 billion devolution deal to create fully integrated public transport system under public control with fast green transport free for under-18s. Labour could do all of that for Britain if it chose to. We're sick of excuses of fiscal rectitude and 
ironclad rules. Everything I've done in Newcastle in the north of Tyne is without incurring any debt or charging anyone a penny in council tax. Is that not fiscal rectitude? I've increased adult education enrolments from 22,000 a year to 35,000 a year on the same budget. Is that not fiscal rectitude? My total transport network will lever in over £2 billion of ethical finance from pension funds. Is that not fiscal rectitude? Every pound I invest returns £3 to Treasury in payroll taxes alone. So if anybody ever tells you that putting working class people first is bad for the economy, you send them to me. Now, I started... <laughs> oh, go for it. <laughs> I started with Dante's Inferno. I'll finish with another literary classic. In Animal Farm, <laughs> the commandments of animalism were painted on the wall of the shed. Near the end of the book, Clover, the old workhorse, notices they look different. They'd been erased just like Zacchaeus' ten pledges. The animals hear the pigs drinking and gambling with the other farm owners. An argument breaks out when both parties play an ace of spades at the same time, and the animals sneak up to the farmhouse window and peek inside. And Orwell writes, Twelve voices were shouting in anger, and they were all alike. No question now what had happened to the faces of the pigs. The creatures outside looked from pig to man, from man to pig, and from pig to man again. But already, it was impossible to say which was which. Thank you to Mayor Driscoll for that excellent speech. Now, moving on to our second opposition speaker, is Yanis Skodris. Ionis is a first-year history and politics students from Fitzwilliam. You have the ears of the house. So, members of the Cambridge Union, I'd like to begin by expressing my gratitude in being given the opportunity to speak and look forward to sharing my thoughts on you on this issue, or lack thereof. The proposition has made some great points that I'd like to expand upon, but they've used various terminology. I, instead, will phrase them as the evolution and progression of the Labour Party and the embracing of economic responsibility. This is much better suited to serving the working class than some radicalism. Today's Labour hasn't betrayed anyone. The claim we find ourselves up against today is tantamount to suggesting that every Labour government in the last 30 years has hurt the average worker, a myth which couldn't be further from the truth. I'll show this through two major points. A, that an electable centrist Labour can incite far more change than a radical opposition party. And B, that even if a radical Corbynite Labour were in power, they would be of much greater threat to the working class. My first point is proven through the manifestation of new Labour under Tony Blair. The party was modernised, Clause 4 rightfully scrapped from its constitution, embracing market economics. A third way was envisioned, which meant Labour could finally win again. So much could now be achieved for lower-income groups which had been neglected under recent neoliberalism. Policies like the Sure Start programme, acknowledged by my friend here, focus on accessible education and family support, especially resourceful for those in disadvantaged areas. Fundamentally, Blair emphasised each individual's employment right. 
uh, Mayor Driscoll talks about continuity Thatcherism, but he introduced the national minimum wage in 1999. He signed the European Social Chapter, which both Thatcher and John Major opted out of. Continuity Thatcherism? The, the EU Working Time Directive was implemented, limiting the working week to 48 hours and granting paid holiday. Maternity leave was extended. In a bit, I'll make some progress first. Maternity leave was extended and paternity leave allowed for the very first time. Even unions were recognised and promoted through the 1999 Employment Relations Act. These would have been but mere fantasies had Labour stuck to a radical, rigid, obsolete ideology. The Tories would have remained solely in power and no progress whatsoever would have been made on the advancement of working rights. And that is the harsh truth. Today, the suspension of Jeremy Corbyn from the party signals a watershed moment for Labour. It seems that Labour can finally win again. Many times the Conservative Party warned the British people about him, and they listened. In 2019, under a far-left so-called Workers' Manifesto, 42% of working-class voters, 42% of Labour's base and backbone voted Conservative, while only 33% voted for Jeremy Corbyn, as Labour suffered their greatest defeat in 84 years. Conversely, Labour's now soaring in polls. A win would see the prioritisation of our NHS, of our education system, putting police back on the streets. This is supplemented by a desire to keep British manufacturing alive. Continuity Thatcherism, get Britain building, traditional Labour values. This includes upskilling the domestic workforce and thereby combating structural long-term unemployment. A forecast £3 billion will be invested into the steel industry in the next 10 years alone, helping communities like Sheffield and cities, which are so reliant on it, creating and preserving jobs in the manufacturing sector. The Take Back Control Act promise would also leave the futures of previously left-behind communities in their own hands. Most importantly, today's Labour would help protect workers' rights. Keir Starmer is intent on restoring a genuine living wage, attacking the gig economy pioneered by 14 years of Tory government through a ban on zero-hour contracts, and ending the injustices of fire and rehire, continuity Thatcherism. Once again, trade unionism is back on the agenda as he pledges to tear up anti-trade union laws and defend the right to strike. I'm not sure that this is trickle-down economics. Does any of what I just said sound like betraying the working class? I can't see any reason why Labour shouldn't be praised for their sensibility and pragmatism rather than being berated for refusing the worship of false prophets and their apocalyptic prophecies. Yes? Is it pragmatic to not commit to lifting the two-child benefit pack, which is the single yeah. biggest driver of child poverty in this country? Is that pragmatism? I'll get to that in my next point. This is a, that's exactly what I'm talking about in my next point that even if radicalism was electable, it would still be much less beneficial for the working class. And this is in light of the COVID recession, the worst economic crisis since the 1930s. Things are bleak now, but there's a reason they're so bleak. And that's because of the COVID crisis. Turn... Yeah. I'm, get, I'm getting to it. I'm, I'm getting to it. I'm getting to it. I'm getting to it. I'm getting to it. Turning on the spending taps can be on no one's agenda. In the words of Keir Starmer... No. In the words of Keir Starmer, growth is stagnant and public services are on their knees. Taxes are higher than at any time since the war. We will be ruthless when it comes to spending every pound wisely. 
Unfortunately for those opposite, there's a stark difference between economic competence and, as Tony Blair would call it, marooning on Fantasy Island. <laughs> Reckless spending won't help the working class. It will be the final blow to a victim already in intensive care. Government debt reached 97.8% of GDP in October. And the next year, it's forecast to reaching 98.6. Reverting to Jeremy Corbyn's ideas for renationalization of, and I apologize in advance for the long list, rail, energy, water, the Royal Mail, and broadband infrastructure would cause unprecedented havoc. We simply don't have the means, no. We simply don't have the means nor justification to go that far. So it's been replaced by far more effective re-regulation. After these points, I'd like to reaffirm that being economically responsible doesn't mean that Starmer has suddenly metamorphosed into the likes of Hayek or Friedman. Like I've already shown, the working class are being duly represented in a more efficient manner. Today's circumstances mean that Labour must win. If Labour lose now, when Conservatives are at their weakest point, especially because of internal divisions, the consequences would be catastrophic. And the group affected most of all would be the working class. So is it the case, as Team Proposition is so desperate to argue, that a losing party is preferable to a winning one for the working class? That radical socialism is preferable to sensible pragmatism? Yeah. <laughs> Who are you voting for? <laughs> the answer is a resounding no, ladies and gentlemen. And that's what's being proven in the polls today. So I'd like to finish with a Machiavellian ideal that says that one must consider the final result before judging the process by which it's obtained. The evolution of the Labour Party should not be confused or conflated with a rash impulse that the working class are being left behind. Thank you. Now we're moving to our final round of paper speakers. So in proposition of this motion, for the final time, we have Zach Polanski. Zach is the deputy leader of the Green Party, a member of the London Assembly, and was a delegate at COP26. Zach, you have the ears of the House. Thank you. I first want to start by admiring the passion of the abstention. That was one of the most articulate and excited um, abstentions I've ever heard, including uh, the person out there on the balcony, too. I've never seen someone on a balcony want to abstain before. That, that was a real passion, too. Thank you. Um, we've had a learned debate tonight. We've had Dante's Inferno, we've had Animal Farm, we've had Machiavelli. I want to push that up by talking about BBC Claudia Winkleman's The Traitors. <laughs> because the Labour Party are not 100% faithful. And in fact, I want to make the argument for why they have to be banished. And joking aside, as the deputy leader of the Green Party, it's my MO to talk positively about vision and hope and about why the Green Party is the future. And I want to talk to the person up there who doesn't like the Labour Party, but is still voting Labour Party. That doesn't make sense. Let's, <laughs> let's talk afterwards. But quite seriously, I like to talk about hope and passion and not the Labour Party so much, but I've been invited to talk about the Labour Party, so here we go. Um, uh, you make a really good point over here, a uh, young man from Islington. Um, first of all, the elephant in the room is the fact that you could do British political history in reverse backwards at the speed you did it, and it was very impressive, and I don't feel like anyone's noted that. But I think the point you made about the trade, whether it's in the past, whether it's a long period or whether it's a short period, is a really key point here, and I want to answer that point. 
So the first place I want to go is one of the things I'm proudest of as an elected politician. When I was first elected to the London Assembly, I stood with a group of care workers. This group of care workers were working right through the pandemic. They were working hard to keep our cities running when most of us were safe, locked up in our homes, keeping safe from COVID. They were out there every single day and they weren't given a lift to their wages. When they complained to the CEO about how hard they were working, they were offered cold pizza. Now, this group of care workers unionised. They got together with an amazing union called United Voices of the World. This union represents low-paid black and brown migrant workers across the city. They got in touch with me. Other politicians had ignored them and said, will you stand in solidarity? I know that when working class people, be they migrant workers or people wherever they're from, when they ask for solidarity, the only authentic response is to give it. So I turned up with them on the picket line, I brought TV news and media, and eventually they won. They are now among the highest paid care workers in London. And my point of this story is that trade unions work, solidarity works. At the same time, we had a Labour leader, and let's say that word one more time, Labour leader, who was telling his MPs not to go on picket lines. He was saying that people who are preparing for government don't stand on picket lines. I'm sorry, as a representative politician, my number one job, and the clues in the title, is to represent people. And how can you represent people, particularly working class people, if you're not literally willing to stand side by side to them and listen to their concerns? Now, I can hear an objection here would be, standing side by side is not winning and not getting what they wanted. Of course it's not. You also need to win power, and I'll deal with that in a second. But ultimately, what are you winning power for if you're not listening to people? What are you winning power for if you don't have the vision, the hope, the tangible action plan for success? And Labour don't have that. And that's not just my words. You hear it all the time from the Labour shadow front bench. We're not offering a lot of hope. You know, it's, it's quite hard, it's bleak. There's no money left. We keep hearing this phrase. There's no money left. Let me tell you, friends, I think you probably know this. There is a lot of wealth in this country. There is a huge amount of wealth in this country. And it is a political choice to not have a wealth tax, to not challenge the super rich multimillionaires and billionaires, but instead to implement austerity 2.0. I could end my speech here, I'm not going to, but I can't think of any stronger point than a Labour leader being prepared to carry on Thatcherism, Cameronism, Trussism, Sunakism, I haven't checked these isms, but they all work. But the point is this, the opposition is meant to oppose. Now, I know they've not been in government, but if you refuse to present an alternative vision, if your vision is just a little bit more of the same, but a little bit nicer, not quite as nasty, that's not okay. We heard the point over here from Chris about how the NHS had saved his life, yet we have a shadow front bench who were talking about privatisation, who were talking about outsourcing. It is vital, both for the working class, but frankly for our entire population, that our public services remain public. I think it was someone over here who knocked. In fact, it was our fellow speaker, and thank you to the student speakers, by the way. I naturally agree over here more, but you were both great. We talk as if nationalisation is something impossible, as if it's this impossible dream. We had nationalisation. We privatised our water companies and they got put in immense debt. 
That money was going to their shareholders and dividends. This is not some impossible dream or some wild idea. We can have the things we want if we choose to vote for them. Now, I'm in danger at this point of turning into a party political broadcast, and I'm not going to, but what I will say for 30 seconds is that the Green Party over the last few years, since 2019, have over quadrupled their number of seats at the local council level. This is even under first pass for post. We have proven time and time again that we can and we do win. We are targeting seats, and those people in those seats, by voting Green all across the country, that is a vote to tackle the climate crisis, it's a vote to tackle the inequality crisis. It's not a cost of living crisis, by the way. Some people are doing perfectly well out of it. It's an inequality crisis. And it's a vote for proportional representation. Because the point over here about past Labour leaders losing, they didn't lose. Well, they did lose. That's, that is true. <laughs> Sometimes hear what you say and go, no, I don't, don't agree with that. What lost, though, and where we all lose, is the broken first-past-for-post voting system. That voting system that forces, yes, that does deserve a clap. That is the voting system that forces people to pick the better of two evils. We heard it tonight from the intervention over here, you know, Keir Starmer isn't great, but kind of what we're stuck with, so vote for him. I think we can lift our sights higher than that. I think we can ask for more than that. I think we all deserve better than that, but no one deserves better than that. More than marginalised groups in this society. Sure, I heard point of order. My vision isn't good enough. Where did it come from? Hit me. Not literally, but... <laughs> Mr Polanski, continue with his speech. Sure. Um, I'd love to respond to that directly. You were surrounded by a halo, but what you were saying was not angelic. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Keir Starmer was challenged in a similar way, just like this, but it was by a group of student activists. They were climate activists. They put Keir Starmer on the spot and asked him about the very future of this planet, of ecological collapse, of climate breakdown. What was Keir Starmer's response, his instinctive response? I'm on the side of economic growth. Economic growth has destroyed this country. And in fact, when you look at GDP, even the person who created the idea or designed the idea of GDP says this is a terrible way to measure the well-being of a country. What about our mental health? What about cohesive communities? What about dealing with the disability pay gap, the ethnicity pay gap, the gender pay gap? These are crucial things that we should be prioritising. And when you talk about just build, build, build for the sake of it, it is a denial of the existential crisis we face. Uh, point of order over here. How will you pay for your solutions to any of those problems? Thank you very much. So there's lots of ways, but one of the first ways we could look at is a wealth tax. If you do a 1% tax on the wealthiest 1%, that would raise about £75 billion a year that you could put straight back into green investment. Thank you very much. That's the thing I can ignore, right? No. <laughs> um, we also need to look at things like a universal basic income, looking at how people can work differently, a four-day working week. Because to conclude, Keir Starmer couldn't even define what the working class was. For me, it's very clear. It's people who don't have choice over their lives, who feel like they don't have power or autonomy about the things that they do. And I want to finish with this. You made the most important point tonight. Intersectionality. There is no environmental justice without social, racial and economic justice too. These things are all interconnected. And until we accept that in this country we need a movement that is progressive, that is socially just, 
that cares about the planet and is fiscally responsible, but only as much as we need to to keep the economy moving, but does not prioritise it above the planet. All of these things are there in the waiting. Labour could have done this for a long time. They've chosen not to. They've chosen to defend first past the post. And that's exactly why Labour have betrayed the working class. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr Polanski, for that impassioned, insightful speech. We now move to our final paper speech of the evening, after which you'll have the opportunity to vote and make your voice heard decisively on how, whether you've been convinced or not by proposition or opposition. But before we get to that, we have Seb Topan. Seb is a third-year HSPS student from Hughes Hall. He's a varsity journalist and a long-standing member of the Labour Club executive at Cambridge. Seb, you have the ears of the house. Charity is a cold grey, loveless thing. If a rich man wants to help the poor, he should pay his taxes gladly, not dole out money at a whim. Mr President, Clement Attlee was right then, and he's right now. The Labour Party lives and breathes to support those less fortunate, make society a more equitable, prosperous place for all, and it never has and never will turn its back on the working class. And I know what the proposition has insinuated tonight, that Blair's new Labour and Keir's, Keir Starmer's Labour Party of today has sacrificed their socialist principles to attain the keys to number 10, thereby betraying the working class. But the real betrayal, Mr Speaker, the real betrayal is not being electable to the point which allows years and years of conservative rule. That is the real betrayal. And I know what the conservatives in the chamber tonight will think also. Please. You can be electable by whatever policy after six years of failure in the Tory government, after failure in Brexit, after failure handling the COVID pandemic, after the failure of um, a destroyed and currently being destroyed NHS, you don't particularly need to hold on to any particular policies that you think are going to get you to win. You can basically make whatever argument you want to make to get the keys for number 10. All you have to do is be different from the Conservatives. I don't yeah, think do that. it's not difficult to be different when Corbyn's the leader of the Labour Party. But I know what the Conservatives will say in the chamber tonight. They'll say that there's... They'll help, the, they'll help the working class more than any political party in the UK. That's what they'll say. That's what they do say. But the only difference between compassionate conservatism and conservatism is that under compassionate conservatism, they say they're not going to help you, but they're really sorry about it. Now, there are three aspects, three perspectives to this debate I want to focus on. Why is it so important more than ever that Labour gets into government later this year? How has Labour been the defender of the working class and the significance of what Labour in power would prevent for the working class? There is no shame and nothing wrong 
with reacting to a shifting Overton's window, the spectrum of acceptability of governmental policies. To help the working class, you must implement policies which benefit those less fortunate. And to implement such policies, you must have the power to do so. And to have the power, you need to be elected. And to be electable, you must align to the general values of society. Not now. You must also be realistic about what you can achieve in government with the economy you have. The opposite benches have mentioned, and members of the House have mentioned today, about Starmer's policy not to scrap the child benefit cap beyond two children per family. Many would take this as a, di as a direct betrayal of the working class, and you'd be forgiven to think so. And as difficult and controversial a decision it is, I would suggest that it's set up, in fact, long-term, to actually benefit the working class, not in, just, not in terms of the welfare system itself, but in many other areas that desperately need funding and could alleviate the burden on the working class. There is a clear distinction, one moment, there is a clear distinction between a centre-left Labour Party and the Conservative policies of the past. So let's look at what a Labour government would do if elected to benefit the working class. It would scrap the tax break for private schools, build more homes and help first-time buyers have the first pick of new homes in their area, create a publicly owned Great British Energy Company to cut energy bills and deliver great jobs, making families £1,400 better off every year. Create a modern childcare system with breakfast clubs in every primary school to give children the best start. Extend the, extending maternity and paternity leave. These pledges, they don't betray the working class. Yes. Um, as we all know, kids are seen his ten pledges again to have seen his leaders. How can we trust him to do all those pledges when he gets to our nationwide? I mean, he's proven himself to be a liar once to the people. So how can the people trust him again to not just do what he did when he got to I take your point. It's a very fair point that leaders from any political party can promise one thing and deliver another. And sometimes they can let you down, sometimes they can raise your hopes and deliver on those hopes. But I would urge you to have faith, and I would urge you to put your trust in Labour after 14 years of misery that the Conservatives have brought to this country. I would urge you to believe in those promises and just hope that we can deliver a better future. The alternative, the alternative is to carry on with Rishi Sunak. The alternative is to carry on with a decimation of the aspirations and hopes of the working class. And I think the alternative is pretty, is pretty bad as opposed to what I'm arguing tonight. I want to make some progress. These pledges, they don't betray the working class very clearly. They place the livelihoods and quality of life of individuals and families otherwise struggling under a conservative government at the heart of their ability to change society for the many, and indeed put more money in the Treasury. And with more money in the Treasury, it can be spent on policies such as scrapping the child benefit cap, which I very much hope they do and encourage. These are only a few reasons why it's more important than anything to see Labour in government later this year. Now, there is a reason why Corbyn didn't get elected. Corbyn, it could be argued, betrayed the working class more than Blair, as seen in the 2019 decimation of the Red Wall. In the last general election, the Red Wall said no to Corbyn. 
They said no to hard left, unrealistic fantasies. <laughs> they felt safer in the hands of Boris Johnson, a man who sweats inequality and attempts to clean himself up by leveling up masquerade. If that doesn't tell you Labour was doing something wrong, then not only is it betrayal on the working class, but it's a betrayal on the betterment of society as a whole. Blair understood what it meant to help the working class. You know, if you look at the statistics, it's generally those who struggle to make ends meet, but struggle to put a roof over their, ha their houses, struggle to put food on the table, actually voted for Brexit. If you think that Jeremy Corbyn lost... If, if, if you think that Corbyn lost because of Brexit, then you're severely mistaken. Blair understood what it meant to help the work... Thank you very much. That's a, thank you. Blair understood what it meant to help the working class. Be electable. Change society for the better against the real threat of conservatism. Corbyn... Corbyn only extended the time for conservatives to be in power, extending austerity, extending the difficulty for those individuals and families struggling to make ends meet. No. The Joseph Rowntree Foundation found 3.8 million people experienced the most extreme form of poverty in 2022. That's a 61% increase since 2019, since when Johnson defeated Corbyn. That is the real betrayal. And I'm all for freedom of thought, and I have no doubt that Corbyn is a principled man. But if you cannot put that, put that thought into tangible action, action that benefits the working class, then what's the point? What is the point of having a useless, powerless protest group as a parliamentary opposition? Politics without principle is barren. But politics, but, but politics without power is futile. Let me tell you what action looks like. Making museums free of charge, action. Minimum wage, action. Sure start, action. State pension increases, action. Introduction of academies, action. Working tax credit, action. Child tax credit, action. Introducing paid paternity leave, action. This is action, not just thought. These achievements of the last Labour government demonstrate two things. They demonstrate that Labour has always been the defender of the working class, but moreover, to be the defender of the working class, you must have power. Without power, change does not happen. What a Labour government does to prevent for the working class, let me tell you what really hurts the working class and cast your mind back to 2010, when Cameron and Osborne won the keys to Downing Street and unlocked a Pandora's box full of austerity measures and misery. Reductions in welfare spending, the cancellation of school building programmes, spending on police, courts and prisons also reduced. And the gift that keeps on giving now, the Conservatives, the bedroom tax was introduced, penalising social housing tenants of spare bedrooms by reducing the housing benefits, thereby placing financial strain on already low-income families. The self-declared party of aspiration, they betray the working class. What prevents this from happening is a realistic centre-left Labour Party. And gr granted, governments, governments are confronted with challenges and difficult decisions, and there's no doubt that the incoming Labour government later this year will be faced with the same challenges and difficult decisions. But betraying the working class, an act of distrust, is not what this Labour Party 
or any Labour Party is about. It's about earning the trust of the electorate, the wider electorate, and being gifted the power to change society for the better, preventing these conservative policies ensuing. Now, Mr. President, I hope you don't I hope you forgive me if I direct my closing remarks to my Labour friends and supporters in the chamber tonight, and indeed on the opposite bench. We have right now a real serious opportunity to get into government, put the Conservatives back into opposition, attain the power so desperately needed to help struggling individuals and families. Ask yourself, if not now, after 14 years of Conservative rule, when? And if not Labour, who? Because it's certainly not going to be the Conservatives, and it's definitely not going to be the Greens either. <laughs> not with the system we have. Now, Labour has always been and always will be the party of the working class, so I urge you and everyone in the chamber to come together and gain the trust of the wider electorate, be there for the working class and indeed all members of society, bring society, the society in which we live, into a prosperous, new, aspiring age of compassion and hope. And Labour can deliver that, Labour can do that and support and help the working class. Thank you. Thank you so much to all our speakers tonight. Can we please give them one more round of applause? Now, now, for those of you new to the chamber, you leave and you can vote aye, no, or abstention. The results will be announced in the bar. Could I please thank in particular Naomi Cray and Felix Escher for convening this debate, and thank you to everyone who participated and made it what it is.